so we will conclude our study in the book of Malachi today. And I wanted to say something up front about this uh, series, which has been pretty quick, I think. I mean, it's kind of like, whoa, we're not used to four-week series. We're used to two and a half years or six months or something. But um, I titled this series, How Great Is Your God? And the more I've thought about that, the more I'm like, you know, I don't know that, that I've made it clear as to why that was the case. The main reason was out of that first chapter when God says, If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? And we made a comment that week um, that we have made God very small in our culture. And He's almost an afterthought. And, and what we said that week was He's not an old man asleep up in a rocking chair in heaven somewhere, but He is the creator and sustainer of the universe and as we draw this study to a close today, I want to re-focus uh, on this statement. And I want you to think about this statement. How great is your God this morning? As we come into our text today, which is the, the fourth chapter of Malachi, which is six verses. And I want you to think about where we've been. If you can go back, yeah, wow, uh, I've been here for um, Philippians First John, the Gospel of John, Romans, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, and now Malachi. And if you can hearken back to any of those things, and some of you can, some of you weren't here, so you can't, <clears throat> we've painted a picture of a, hopefully, a really big God. A God who is sovereign over everything. A God who is orchestrating things and working a plan and has been working a plan for 6,000 years now that is coming to an ultimate point. And if you know anything about the Bible, it is really amazing, this plan that he has been working. What we're going to see this morning as we close Malachi, this is the end of the Old Testament. This is the end of that chapter, or the end of that scene in a play, if, if you want to phrase it that way. And this brings to close, and we'll talk about this more later, this brings to a close 4,000 years of biblical history. How big was God in those 4,000 years? What was He doing over those 4,000 years? And then we want to ask ourselves as we bring this to a close today, how great is our God today who for the last 2,000 years has been doing something new and different than he did in these first 4,000 years. And can you see not just the hand of God, but the very presence of God in creation, in your life, in the past, in the future? And I want to ask you again today, how great is your God? Do you know this great God or do you not? If you would stand, we're actually going to read Malachi 3, 16 through 4, 6, because I want to reiterate something that we saw at the end of last week's message to bring us into this week's message. And we stand because we believe that these are God's very words, that the Bible that we read that you'll see up here, maybe you hold in your hands or on your device, that God recorded these words and that they are His words. And if He is a great God, His words demand reverence and honor and respect. 
So that's why we stand as we read publicly the very words of the God of the universe. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son. Then once more you shall... Arrogant, all evildoers. The day that is coming shall of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. I pray. God, I pray that today we would see you, know you, and recognize you as great. As a God who defies words and who defies worldly wisdom. A God who is far beyond anything we could think or imagine, yet who condescends and invites us to be at your table. Holy Spirit, would you please convict us and show us Jesus today. For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. And amen. You may be seated. I just want to touch on this uh, last verse of chapter 3 as we begin. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. What we're going to see all through this passage today is a distinction between the wicked and the righteous, those who serve God and those who do not serve God. And I want to ask you again, is God great enough to make that distinction? Is God righteous in His choosing the righteous and punishing the wicked? Because we will see a distinction all through these next six verses, eight verses. Six verses, I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Keep in mind, then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. With that in mind, let's start with four one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So, as we begin in this last chapter, it's going to be super important to remember what we've seen through the previous three chapters. So I'm going to give you one last overview for clarity in this final piece. We saw from the very beginning in Malachi 1 that God was speaking to the people of Israel in a word that was called what? Do you remember? A burden or an oracle. A heavy, hard word 
that necessitates careful attention and consideration. Now I want to ask you, thinking about that, has this been hard? I think it has been hard. These messages have been hard. And they have conveyed the heart, hopefully, and mind of a God who at this time, speaking this word, was angry. Who was angry with His people. And so he speaks forth this burden, this oracle, this heavy word that necessitates careful attention and consideration. And we said at that point that all of God's words are to be seen as carrying the very weight of the creator and sustainer of the universe. Again, how great is your God? And if we fail to see that, if we fail to see the weight and and, and the gravity of the words of God, if we fail to receive what's being said in light of it, we will miss the point of not just this book, but the Bible altogether. And God's word was being proclaimed through a man named Malachi, whose very name means my messenger. And what was the first thing? Do you remember the first thing that God said to these people? The first thing that he said was, I have loved you. And in response to their question of how he has loved them, how have you loved us? He says he has loved them in a way shown by his unconditional choosing of them way back when he chose Jacob as the recipient of his covenant, and hating Jacob's brother Esau twins in the womb, and then hating Esau to the point of utter destruction. God then moved from there to decry the polluted offerings of the priests in their service and worship to him. He calls for honor as their father, and fear as their master, and points to their offering blind and lame animals on his altar as a sign of the lack of that honor and fear. In one ten, he says this, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, talking to the priests, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. He's reached the point with them that he wishes they would just close the temple and cease their pathetic worship practices altogether. That would be better than what they're doing, is what he said. And he reminds them that his name will be great, not just among them, but among the nations in the whole world, which had always been his plan and design, and is still his plan and design, by the way. God then goes on to remind the priest that he had made a covenant with Levi to bless the Levitical priesthood with life and peace, and that they had turned aside from that covenant, and now were walking in curses for their disobedience instead of blessings for obedience. God then turns His attention to the whole nation of the Israelites, those returned exiles who were living in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, and says that they have intermarried with the foreign people of the land and have also divorced their right wives, their Israelite wives, and both of these things the Lord had forbidden and He despises. And then last week we saw God promising another messenger would be coming. And last week we identified that messenger as John the Baptist who would come and prepare the way before God, before God ultimately Jesus, promising that the messenger of the covenant would come, that messenger being Jesus. And we mentioned last week, and it's going to be super important again today to realize this as well, prophecy has a unique structure when you look at it. Generally, there's an immediate fulfillment to the prophecy, an intermediate or later fulfillment of the prophecy, and then a final fulfillment of the prophecy. That's not universally true in prophecy, but it is true a lot. So in this case, we saw Malachi coming as my messenger. So he was a partial fulfillment of the messenger who was coming. 
And then we said last week that John the Baptist fulfilled that role before Christ came. And then there will be a final day, and we'll see this later today too, when a final messenger will come before the final day of the Lord. So it, it's really, it's tricky. Prophecy's tricky. It's, it's God talking to us, and He's talking in baby speak so we can kind of understand it. But we don't have big enough brains. We don't have a big enough capacity to really understand what He's doing. And He works everything outside of time, and He speaks into time, and we're going, yeah, well, this had to be fulfilled here. When in actuality, there's probably a present, a future, and a final fulfillment to, to most of these prophecies. He's big. He's bigger than you. He's smarter than you. And so when we talk about prophecy, we've got to keep those things in mind, and we'll point out more of this later. But Jesus, who is the messenger of the covenant, there's a messenger coming before Jesus who's going to prepare His way. Jesus is called the messenger of the covenant. And when He comes, God says He will be like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will be a purifier. Then God said He will come in judgment to the wicked, swiftly witnessing against them. And then in 3.6, God says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So after pointing out the failings of the priests and the people, after showing their unfaithfulness to the covenant that they were in with Him, God points to His immutability, His unchanging nature, and says that is the reason that the Israelites are not consumed or totally destroyed. Not because they're good and because they've tried hard and they did all right. We've seen they have not done all right. But because God doesn't change, and that's really good news, because God doesn't change, they're not consumed. They're not destroyed. And that's kind of him saying, you guys have blown it and blown it and blown it and blown it. And since my love does not change for you, you're not consumed. I feel that way every day. And I go to God every day and say, thank you for your love, which does not change because I haven't been really good today. So he points out to them it's his unfailing love, his immutability, that is the reason they're not destroyed. And then all through the book to this point, we've seen a mashup of the Israelites as a whole and in the midst of them collectively, a distinction between the faithful and the wicked. We see that as the third chapter ends, which is what I read there before this, in that God calls them to be faithful with the tithe and also in that He points to the words of the faithless against them and the words of those who fear the Lord. And that brings us to chapter 4. And it's important to see the path that's brought us here. We've seen God speaking to His people, pointing out their disobedience and their obedience, clearly identifying the faithful and the faithless, and even answering their snarling, pathetic, how have we's and how have you's with His direct word. Based on the unchangeableness of God and His love, based on God's overarching plan to be exalted among the nations and for His name to be great in all the earth, God is doing something with these people. And the fact that He chose these people and worked out a plan that included these people shows how great He is. And again, it's the same for us. The fact that God would choose me and want to show His glory through me shows that He is truly great. He has a plan. And He is separating out those who will be in cooperation with Him and those who will be rightful recipients of His wrath and judgment. Now it's going to be important to note and understand the nature of the prophetic word in understanding all this. Again, that immediate, intermediate, and final fulfillment. Keep that in mind. So, as we turn now to chapter 4, 
in verse 1. Remember, these are the very last words of the Old Testament. So how would the immediate hearers of those words, which they didn't know it was the last words God was going to be speaking, but how would they be received? How are they foreshadowing the events that we'll see in the New Testament? We're going to spend some time, at least a week, maybe two, looking at the intertestamental period after we finish Malachi, which is the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, when God was silent, but He wasn't not working. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. How was God preparing these people so that His plan is carried out even in those times? God is setting the table, so to speak, for what He's about to do. So, with that background being set and those future events to look forward to, again, 4.1. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So 3.16 said that God will make a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked, the obedient and the disobedient, and then says that that day is coming. When that day comes, it will come burning like an oven. Now this is reminiscent of God saying that the coming messenger would be a purifying fire. Here, the coming day will come burning like an oven. You ever open the oven and like that heat comes out and it feels like it burns your eyebrows off? And you're like, oh! It's like 450, 500 degrees in there. It's a lot of heat. And then when it comes rushing out of there, anybody ever done that? Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only idiot. I'm like, oh, it's hot in there. Boo! It tells you how hot it is in there, fool. So... So he says the day's coming burning like an oven. The day of the Lord, the coming day, will come with intense heat. And that heat will set ablaze the arrogant and the evildoers, making them stubble and leaving them neither root nor branch. Now that's a pretty clear picture of the damage this day will do. The wicked will be stubble and will leave them neither root nor branch. Now it's one thing to have a forest fire where you've got some charred trees standing, this is saying no branch left, no root left. This is utter destruction. Have you ever seen a fire that burnt the roots of a tree? I have not. But that's what God's saying. He's saying from the top of the tree down into the ground, those who are the wicked will be like a tree that's been burnt from root to branch. And they will be stubble. This is complete destruction. So, I'm, so what I want to ask you as far as fulfillment goes, is this judgment that he's talking about current in their time? Is it in the future, that intermediate time? Or is this final judgment? It seems to me that this is talking about the judgment coming upon the wicked in the form of hell, which would be final judgment. Stay with me there, okay? Final judgment, final fulfillment of the day of the Lord. We do see some waves of judgment come upon Israel in the years after Malachi's prophecy, which we'll talk about in that intertestamental period. But this won't be accomplished. And this won't be accomplished, it would seem, until the final judgment on the last day. But God wants them to see that their evil, their unfaithfulness in their present day, is setting a dangerous precedent for coming generations. And your evil, your sin, always has future implications. Three laws of the harvest, right? You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, 
and you reap later than you sow. Universally. No exceptions. So if you're sowing sin into your life, if you're sowing sin into your family, generations down the road, you're going to reap more than what you sowed. And God's telling them here, you're disobedient now, and it's going to have consequences well into the future. In the coming generations, when this final destruction comes, it's going to be your sins now that planted the seeds for this destruction later. You don't get away with sin. Ever. Ever. You say, well, nobody knows it. Nobody sees it. It's in your heart. And there will be punishment for sin one way or the other. We'll talk about that later. And while it may not look like they're suffering God's judgment, they ultimately will if they continue in their unfaithfulness, even if it's eternal judgment. But now look at verse 2. We see the distinction again between the evil and the righteous. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So what happens to the righteous in this final judgment? They're separated out. And in that final day, for those who fear God's name, heat is coming too. But it's not like an oven. It's the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, rising with healing in its wings. Now, that's kind of a weird picture. You ever thought about the sun having wings? Oh, look at the wings of the sun today. Aren't they beautiful? What are you smoking? It's that stuff that Danny and Christy used to bring here and drink. That, that mate, dope stuff. The sun don't have wings, right? And the, read, the, read the commentaries on this. There's a lot of crazy explanations. I just won't even go there. I think it just refers to the fact that the sun comes up, which gives it the appearance that it's flying. That, that's what I think. Either way, the sun of righteousness rises on that final day and it will bring healing with it for God's people. So when the sun rises on that final day and intense heat comes and burns up the wicked, that sun is going to bring healing for the righteous. And healing brings joy to the people of God. And the picture of that joy he uses is one of calves leaping from the stall. Anybody ever seen that? You guys ever seen it? At the Kemper Farm, or they just know that they're going to be meat, so they don't skip much. <laughs> huh? They do taste good. I taste good today. Um, see, what happens is when calves are pent up in a stall for a long time, they got all this, it's like kids, they got all this energy, like when they're in school, when they're going to be, calves are in that stall. When you let them out, man, they just come out skipping, hopping. Let's see. Let's see if this will work. Huh? This is a minute and eight seconds of skipping calves. So just enjoy it. I mean, watch it. Dude is tickled to death. Look at him. He's going to come back in a second and he's, he's just jumping and hopping. Woo! Hey, look at that. Look at him. Slow motion even. Woo! And actually this video they were saying that this is what this calf did every time after he ate. Which... I'm just the opposite. I collapse and I, I fall asleep. But not this guy. That's the way you go to the table. That's the way I go to the table, right. But, but God is painting the picture here of coming out when this last day happens, when, when the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings, you'll be skipping like calves from the stall. Yeah. So get that picture. 
There's joy coming, ultimate joy coming for the people of God, for the righteous. And while there will be destruction from root to shoot for the wicked, there will be joy for the righteous. Now let me ask you something real quick. Are you looking forward to the final day? We're like, well, things are pretty good right now, you know. I mean, the final day, you know, when all things... Listen, when all things are made right, when sin is taken out of the picture, and there'll be no more death and disease and dying and all that bad stuff, and He wipes away every tear from your eye, and you take your first step into eternity where you'll worship God forever, are you looking forward to the last day when you're skipping like a calf in the very presence of God? Or is he not great enough to look forward to that? You think his plan's kind of flawed. You know, this stuff is good here. Why have we got to give this up? How great your God. And when the sun of righteousness rises, his people, those who fear his name, will go out leaping like calves from the stall. And notice those who fear his name. Remember chapter 1, if I'm a master, where is my fear? Those who fear God, who know Him as Master, will rejoice when His day comes. And ultimately, it's His glory that's being revealed. It's not just we get good stuff. It's that God is fully glorified in our presence and we see Him in His full glory. And so you see the difference in the fates of those who are evildoers and those who fear the Lord's name. But there's more. Wait, there's more. Verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked... For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now note here who is treading who. God says through Malachi that those who fear His name will tread down on the wicked. Because why? Well, remember the day that we've been talking about, burn them root and shoot. And here, they, the wicked, will be ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. Now do you rejoice in that thought? You're like, I don't want to tread upon the wicked. That's not very nice. We've got to get a right picture of God's judgment. Sinners will spend eternity in hell because they have sinned. Sin is an affront to a holy God. Sin is saying that God is not enough. God's not good. That you've got a better good, a higher good, something better than God. And you choose that. And who has sinned? All of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I want you to hear today, I don't know if you can receive it or not, I have a hard time with it, but the truth is, God will be right to punish the wicked. God will be glorified when He punishes the wicked. And He will put us, the righteous, by His grace, in a place where we are treading the ashes of the wicked under our feet. Paul said in Romans, the God of all peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. Now we don't have a problem crushing Satan, right? Yay, we'll crush Satan. Because we don't have a right view of what wickedness is. When God judges the wicked, it will be right. It will be good. And He will be glorified. And we will be a part of that. All this talk of heat and fire made me think of Second Peter 3. Listen to this. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? The wicked will. 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And Noah's flood. Okay? But by the same word, the same word that sent the flood in Noah's time, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now let me ask you again, are you looking forward to that? You're like, I don't know about the fire part, but I'm excited about the righteousness part. They're one and the same. You can't have one without the other. You can't worship a God of love unless you worship a God of wrath. And that's not very popular in our day and time. I understand, I understand why it's not. But since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What a picture. And how much is this like what we're looking at here in Malachi today? Heat and fire, the day of the Lord, the righteous and the wicked. Listen, this day is coming. It's not a story. It's not an Aesop's fable. It's the very word of God. Some may jeer and mock like Peter said. Some may disbelieve. But this day is coming for them as well. And for us... And for the righteous in Malachi's time, it is the day that we await and will rejoice in when it comes. But what do we do and what does God say to do until then? Verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. God calls for His people to remember the law of Moses, the statutes and rules that God commanded at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, when God came down on the mountain and dictated directly the words that He wanted His people to hear to Moses. And He said, write it down. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was on the mountain and God spoke to him. And it says he neither neither ate bread nor drank water for 40 days because God sustained him with His very word. And man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there at Horeb, God gave the statutes and rules for all Israel. And He's calling them to bring to mind, to honor and keep the law that they should have been keeping since that time a thousand years ago when God spoke directly to Moses. And they have not been faithful with this law. They have broken it. They went into exile because they broke it. Now they're back from exile and they're still breaking it. And why did God give this law in the first place? He gave it for His glory and for their good. 
But since the day of Moses, in the very time of the Exodus, God's people disdained and discarded God's law. God's plan was always to show Himself through His people as they worshipped Him and performed the words of His law. So now here, God says, Remember! Remember the law of Moses. Remember the statutes and rules that I gave through Moses there on the mountain at Horeb. And these laws and statutes and rules were for all Israel. So now, in the midst of this time, when the worship of God is so haphazard, remember the law. Now in this time, when God is about to go silent for 400 plus years, remember, bring to mind and observe the law designed for the glory of God and the good of His people. It is not wearisome. It is not boring. It is life to those who believe and keep it. It's not about just having the thought of the law come back into their minds. Oh yeah, I remember the law. That was neat. But rather remembering it by observing it. Not remembering it like we would remember the fourth grade. Anybody remember fourth grade? It's the longest nap of my life. It was great. But actually making what was formerly there taking it, putting it into the present, and enacting it again. Remember and change in response. For the righteous, this will be a joy. For the wicked, it will be their doom. But God's got one more plan that He wants to talk about before He ceases speaking for the next 400 years. And really, to me, it was, it was a shock. I've read it, but I didn't put it together until going through this. Look at verse 5. Behold. Remember, you got 5 and 6. That's the end of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. First thing that he does, God reminds them that the day of the Lord is coming. And before it does, God is sending Elijah the prophet. So again, remember, we said last week that this refers to John the Baptist. And it does, and it doesn't. Okay, John announced and prepared Jesus' coming. And Jesus came as God in the flesh to His people. So Jesus came in what? Was that the day of the Lord? Was Jesus coming the day of the Lord? Again, yes and no. It was a day of the Lord. God did visit them in the form of Jesus. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. God the Son came and walked on the earth as a person. Truly God and truly man. So that was a day, but it was not the final day of the Lord. Jesus' coming was a definite part of God's plan, but it was not the end of it. So John served as the Elijah before he came. But here we see that that even was a foreshadowing of the final day. And that means that before the final day, the day of the Lord, God will send Elijah the prophet. Now is this what Revelation speaks of when it mentions two witnesses in Revelation 11? Maybe. That would make sense. But whether it is or not, God is sending Elijah before His coming. Elijah the prophet, who called down fire on the prophets of Baal and stood before Ahab and Jezebel and contended with them. He was the prophet who prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He was the prophet God called up to heaven in a whirlwind and chariot of fire. And he's coming again before God closes the curtain on history as we know it, before the final destruction of evil and the glory of the righteous. Elijah is coming. And what will he do? What do you think? Will it be fire? Famine? withstanding the rulers to their faces. What does God say here? Not exactly that. What will Elijah do? What are the final words of the Old Testament? Verse 6. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, 
lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, wait just a second. Fire and intense heat and judgment and righteous and wicked. And the last thing I want to say before I'm quiet for 400 years is that Elijah's coming and he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What? Does that make sense to you? If it does, you're a better person than I am. Because I don't get it. Elijah's coming before I come back and he's going to make all things right and he's going to prepare the way and he's going to make sure that righteousness shines forth like the sun so that as I'm coming up the road, everybody stands and says, God's here. No. Before God comes and makes all things right, the prep work for that to be done is what? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like a pretty big deal. And, and kind of odd. The Old Testament canon is closing. The Old Covenant is shutting the book in preparation for the New Covenant coming. God is preparing to go silent for 400 plus years. He's preparing the way for Jesus to make an entrance into the world that points to an exit. So Jesus is coming to leave. And God is laying out the blueprint of things till the end of time and He's making arrangements for a prophet to come at the end of all things and focus His attention on the hearts of fathers and their children. What, what is going on here? Why is this the start of the last sentence of the Old Testament and why is God focused on this at the end of time? I would say, look around you, church. Has there ever been a time in history when the problem of fatherlessness has been more pervasive and more profound? I heard a statistic. I don't know if it's true. I'm going to read you some statistics later about fatherlessness. But I heard that 75% of professional football players in the NFL did not grow up in homes with their father. 75%. Three out of four. There is a plague of fatherlessness upon our land. And I'd say not just our land, but in the world. Children are growing up without fathers. And God addresses it 2,400 years ago. Can you see why God would be interested in this subject? The prophet coming will see the scourge of fatherlessness, fatherless children and fathers who have forsaken their children. He will see the effects of this tragedy and they are profound. And this prophet will pronounce the need for repentance on the part of both parties, fathers and children, when he comes. Now let me ask you a question again to set this stage as far as time frame of the prophecy. Did Jesus do this? Did John do this before Jesus? He didn't. So again, this is not talking about John here, this messenger that's coming before the end of time. Actually, Jesus said this in Matthew 10. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father. 
and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies shall be those of his own household. So this was not the work of John or Jesus to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, children of their fathers. Jesus actually came and called people to radical obedience and said that if anyone loved their family, mom, dad, brother, sister, etc., more than him, they weren't worthy of him. Now, was there a call to repentance and a change of hearts in John and Jesus' time? Sure. Were families healed and blessed? Sure they were. But this Elijah that Malachi is referring to at the end times will have a very focused ministry and the fruit from it will be very definite and plain in seeing fathers and children reconciled. Now that's something to celebrate and look forward to, isn't it? Because, God says in Malachi 4.6, if this doesn't take place, He will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Fathers and children will have their hearts turned afresh and anew to each other, lest God strikes the land with a decree of utter destruction. And yes, that destruction is coming either way, but God is making a way for there to be an escape from this destruction. And Elijah the prophet will proclaim that way. And just a quick thought as we end this text and the Old Testament, God's last word to His people as a nation is the Hebrew word harem, H-E-R-E-M, not harem, not like a bunch of wives, harem. The Hebrew word harem means something devoted for destruction. So from the creative power of Genesis 1, when God spoke and the universe leaped into existence, we now come to the close of this act of the drama, and God's last word for 400 plus years is curse or destruction. I will send my prophet. He will turn fathers and children to each other, lest I come and curse, lest I come and destroy. And then, silence. 400 years plus of silence from God. 400 years of famine, of hearing the word of the Lord. Amos had prophesied this back in Amos 8, 300 years before Malachi's time. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. You see, again, the 300 years from Amos to Malachi's last word, the 400 years between Malachi and Jesus' coming, the 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to now, God has had a plan. And it's right on time. And He's announced it every time, what He's going to do. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive it. And if we don't, destruction is coming. And He's made that plain time and time and time again. Do you care enough to look into the book and see it? Or is it just the ramblings of some crazy people 3,000 years ago? If these are the very words of God, we would do well to heed them and try to avoid the destruction that He says is coming. What God says, He does. What He pronounces, He performs. He spent almost 4,000 years creating, speaking, and forming His people in the Old Testament. 
And all of that was with an eye on eternity. And here we sit today, nearly 2,500 years after Malachi shared God's last words with ancient Israel, and that plan is still unfolding, exactly like He said it would. So if God has a plan, and if He's a big God who does what He says He's going to do, we should ask ourselves, what's our role in the plan? So what we do is we turn from the scriptures that we've looked at today and we ask ourselves, how can we apply these ancient words? How can we see into the future of God's plan and how should we act differently in light of it? Which turns us to application. Four F's. Father, fear, future, and fate. Father, fear, future, and fate. Let me say this. <laughs> Mother's Day, usually what happens in churches, we read Proverbs 31 and we talk about how wonderful mothers are and you're so great. And they are. And then Father's Day comes and we're like, you guys are jerks and you're doing a terrible job. This general. What I want to say to you this morning, fathers, is you are doing a great work. You are doing a great work, a God-ordained work, a prophetic work in the plan of God. You are directly imaging forth God to your children. Keep it up. You ain't doing it perfect. Nobody cares if you do it perfect. Love your children. You know why? Because there is a plague of fatherlessness in our culture. Listen, I'm, I've got a lot of these. I'm not going to read them all. We don't have time. Just a few statistics of fatherlessness. 43% of U.S. children live without their father. 90% of homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 90%. 71% of pregnant teenagers lack a father. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. This is a weird one. 90% of adolescent repeat arsonists live with only their mother. I don't, I don't know why, it's crazy. 71% of, of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions have no father. Living Truth, early days, we were going down to the Gene Spadaro Correctional Facility and doing a church service every other Sunday. We sat down one day and we broke up between girls and boys. Men sat down with the boys, women sat down with the girls. And we had eight boys sitting there that day, ranging from age 12 up to 17. And I asked them a question, how many of you had a father in your home growing up? Zero of them raised their hands. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, which is five times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. Now, fathers who are in place here, children with fathers are involved, who are with fathers who are involved are 40% less likely 
to repeat a grade in school. Children with fathers who are involved are 70% less likely to drop out of school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to get A's in school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to enjoy school and engage in extracurricular activities. And 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Ten times the average. So in the spirit of Elijah, in preparation for the end times and from the very heart of God Himself, Father's application, incline your hearts to your children. You say, well, I'm not a father. What's that got to do with me? Maybe you're a child. Incline your heart to your father. He's not stupid. Children, incline your hearts to your fathers. He's not insignificant. You're like, well, he's never home. Incline your heart to him. Pray for him. Bless him. Encourage him. You have a role to play too, children. In the prophetic plan of God. That's fathers. Fear. All through this book, our great God and Master has called His people to fear Him. Now I want to ask you straight up. Do you fear God? Do you have a reverential awe of Him in your life? And are you literally afraid of the power He has and the things He is going to bring upon the nations and the unrighteous? Does it make you tremble? To think about a God who's going to burn the unrighteous from root to branch and turn them into stubble and ashes? He's not playing. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Do you fear Him? Are you afraid of disobeying Him, knowing that sin always brings a curse with it? If He is your master, where is His fear? Now, I praise God for Jesus and the grace shown to me and to us because of Jesus' perfect life, because of Jesus' sacrificial death, because of His resurrection from the dead, and because of the fact that presently He is intercessing for His people, praying to God for us. I, I, I praise God for grace. And alongside the great truth of grace, I want to tremble before God. I want to be blown away by His might and His holiness. I want to walk in fear of disobedience while walking in the full knowledge of forgiveness that has been purchased for me. R.C. Sproul evokes Martin Luther when he refers to this fear as filial fear. F-I-L-I-A-L. Which is like a child fearing his parents. Sproul says this, Luther distinguished between um, trembling, what what do you call it? Judgmental fear. Luther distinguished between judgmental fear and what he called filial fear, drawing from the Latin concept from which we get the idea of family. It refers to the fear that a child has for his father. There's that father-child connection, by the way. In this regard, Luther is thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father or mother and who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of security and love. End of quote. Listen, as Christians, we are not afraid of being punished by God. Once you're in a me, now seated at your table. Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God for us. Which is tremendous news, by the way. 
So we're not afraid of punishment from God. 1 John 4.18 says this, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So I'm not involved in fearing God, worrying that He's going to punish me, no. But I do fear God as my Father who loves and promises reward for obedience to Him. I don't want to miss His best for me. So I fear Him. That's to be our attitude in this day and time as those who have been delivered from the wrath of God. And if you have not been delivered from the wrath of God, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, you should be afraid. Because the King's coming. We'll get to that in a second. Our life as those who have believed in Jesus, in Him, is free from fear of punishment, praise God, but is full of fear of grieving and quenching His Holy Spirit. That's how we get the power to not sin. I'd rather please God than please myself because I fear God and the consequences that come from my disobedience. I'm not afraid He's going to squish me or zap me with a lightning bolt. I'm just afraid of Him being displeased with my actions because I love Him and He loves me. Fathers fear future. Jesus Christ is coming back as King. And He will judge between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked will suffer justly forever in eternal hell. The righteous will receive the reward and they will rule with Christ, worshiping Him for eternity. This is fact. Jesus came the first time as a baby. And since He came the first time, lived that perfect life, died on the cross, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Since that happened, His coming back is sure. Listen to me. Jesus is coming back. What type of lives, Peter said, should we be living then? Waiting for and hastening that day. Lives of holiness and reverence, which is fear. I want to be with a group of people who are so excited about Jesus coming back, they can't stand it. That they wake up today saying, maybe today. Maybe today we get to be with Jesus, King Jesus. Maybe. You're like, well, this has got to happen. That will not go there, okay? I don't want to see your chart. I want to be excited about Jesus coming back today. Or in 2,000 years. That's His plan. But He's coming. He is coming. And He's not slack concerning His promises. And that's the future. Now I want to ask you as we end the Old Testament, as we end this message, what will be your fate? Father, fear, future, fate. Will you be judged as righteous or wicked? You know what will determine that? What you have done with God's plan, which was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Your eternal fate will be determined by what you say about Jesus. Your eternal fate will be fixed by either your faith in Christ or your faith in yourself. And if your faith is in Christ, your fate will be eternal glory. Eternal worship of the perfectly glorified God who has planned history from before the foundation of the world into eternity future. 
if you have placed your faith in hoping that He's not there, ashes. You say, well, that means hell's final destruction. No, your spirit lives forever. And God is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, and your spirit will be tormented forever in the God-glorifying flames of hell. How great is your God? Are you your God? You've got a puny God then. Place your faith in the one who came, visited this planet, walked as a man, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, paying the penalty for your sins went into the grave and came out three days later, showed himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days, and then ascended on high where he is seated at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for his people. That is the king who is coming back. And he will render judgment as to who you have placed your faith in. And your deeds will tell who you have placed your faith in. Your deeds will not save you, but your deeds will show that you have been saved. That is the plan that the great God of the Bible has ordained. So put your faith in Jesus. If you want to know more about that, talk to somebody after this service. Sit down with us at the table and eat some breakfast for lunch, which just sounds crazy, and ask us, how can I know this great God that you're talking about? We'd love to talk to you about it. Let me pray. Remember... Shane's going to come sign our covenant, so don't just get up and leave. Let me pray. God, I thank you that your way is perfect. And your plan involves adopting weak, lost, helpless, dead people into your kingdom. You've invited us. You've adopted us. You've chosen us since before the foundation of the world. Holy Spirit, by your power... Send forth that quickening call and raise sinners from the dead and give them new life. Give us new birth in this place today, God. And for those who do know you, Lord, convict us of our sins and help us to forsake them by the power that your Spirit provides. You loved us enough to unconditionally choose us before the foundation of the world. May we unconditionally follow you until we see you face to face. We need your help. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive a benediction, and then we'll continue Cheyenne Day. <laughs> now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right.